DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Good morning. Welcome in after a most unusual night. PK, there was baseball, but there was no basketball. Yeah, fortunately there was soccer, though. Not at night. Well, depending on where you're living, of course. <laughs> where we live. Oh, okay. Euros in the afternoon. I know, baseball but I was night. breaking down Wednesday Seattle game. See what we got. So it's now... Jazz are done, so really focusing my attention. Well, what do you what do you think about RSL and the Sounders Wednesday night? It's going to be a hell of a pitch. What? <laughs> yeah, a hell of a pitch. Yeah, <laughs> they play on turf in Seattle. Right. Okay. He's throwing out the first pitch. All right. <laughs> Fear nonsense. Uh, enjoy your time up in Seattle. I'm not going to Seattle. Well, the next time you go there, enjoy Broadcast it. out of the studio. Oh, well, I hope for the first time you walk back in. It'll be emotional. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. Listen to the promos closely, people. Listen closely. All right. Speaking of uh, David Locke being emotional, going into the arena on the road with the Clippers and all that, Donovan Mitchell, emotional after the game. And in his Friday media availability after the loss, he went into, uh, and I thought it was a, a good deal. I don't know if the Ox can play some of it or all of it here, but uh, it happened last year. It happened again this year. He's going to be thinking about it when he goes to the grocery store. He's going to be mad about it when he's watching the playoffs. Donovan Mitchell, all sorts of fired up after the loss. This hurts more than last year because we were up again and lost like again. And that, that, this, this going to eat at me for a long time watching the Lake, uh, like the Clippers and the uh, Suns play in the conference finals and even watching the finals like this was we made it had an incredible regular season we made so many pushes and we continued to fight but man like this is going to eat at me when I, even when I go to the grocery store I'm going to be thinking about this like you know what I mean like this is wow there it is Donovan Mitchell well, with the kind of money you're going to be making on this next deal, uh, go ahead and send somebody to the grocery store. <laughs> you can have the groceries delivered. Yes. Am I ever going to run into a jazz player in a grocery store again? <laughs> Used to. That's how one of the reasons I found out that Brian Russell was uh, lived literally up the street. Yeah, but it's a different era. The yeah. money's gotten bigger. Grocery stores, the grocery business has changed. So many neighbors, and they know what I do for a living, they told me, I saw Brian Russell. I saw Brian Russell at the bagel shop. I saw Brian Russell getting gas. I saw Brian Russell at the food store. And so I put two and two together, and then I end up doing the story on Brian Russell and actually spent time at his house, and it was less than a mile away. So I knew he lived in the area because so many people had said so. And then I actually had to go to his house. It's funny how that story worked out, the Tribune, when they sent me there. And of all the people, Brian Russell, because I had the the L.A. connection when he lived two hours away from where I live. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he ends up living two minutes away. Because uh, he, the Jazz PR said, uh, Russell wants to talk to you. Uh, meet him at his house today at 2 o'clock. And they gave me the address. And, I mean, I literally could have walked. It was sort of funny. Valley's a pretty big spot here. and Well, it's a it's a different deal now. It's, uh, you know, even when it comes to groceries, I mean, they're getting at least one, if not two meals a day at the facility, and they don't have to interact. They're in that building. It's more a campus than it is a building, and it's a big chunk of their life. 
And uh, yeah. but for all that, you know, you're you're much less likely to run into people used to run into Carl Malone at the Judge Cafe. Everybody knew he ate there, and so there's a lot less of that going on. Uh, and it makes it maybe a little harder to identify with them. You don't feel like you're around them. You don't see them. But you listen to Donovan there, and you're like, I know exactly how he feels. Because it's how a lot of jazz fans felt. You know, it, it's, it's like you were saying yesterday. It comes to a stop so quickly, just slamming on the brakes. And you could hear that in Donovan's voice right there. But most NBA stars have to go through a lot of that before they win it all. If they win at all, you listed a bunch of MVPs and Hall of Famers yesterday who never won at all. They they paid the price and did the suffering, but didn't get to hoist the trophy. Oh, no. Steve Nash, Allen Iverson, Stockton and Malone, Reggie Miller, Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing. Who have I left out? <laughs> That's a pretty good list. And I sort of think that list is going to grow. Because? Because if they end up with these super teams, it's going to be harder than ever to win it. Well, unless all those players are going to super teams. I mean, Gary Payton yeah, and Carl Malone went to the Lakers. But not all of the yeah. super they, they can't. All those players can't go to the same team. They just can't. Right, but the two or three super teams pass it around, and the super teams last two or three years. Right, I, but I think there's going to be a lot of quality players. The list, right now, today, Damian Lillard looks like he's going to be on that list. Yeah, the list has to grow. It can't shrink, right? So if they're, those players were all kind of in the 1990 to 2010 window, I guess, And with Nash, been the last. Combo's got a shot, but he's who knows if he get it. But I'm, I would guess that he doesn't get it. And so, although he's such a young pup, they've he's all got still to got have, a chance. Lillard's a good call there because Lillard is older than Kempo and doesn't appear to be nearly as close. Was team, yeah, right. So it's not a. I don't. To me, it's getting less of a. Uh, a knock against these stigmas, a nice word too, against these guys. But Mitchell, you know, he's still young enough. He's got the great thing about Mitchell, man, is sit back and enjoy the ride, is that he's got an opportunity. If you're a fan, most of our listeners are, to think that, man, he's going to get this, have an opportunity, and you can, you can be there whether you're here literally in the building or you're watching at home. You're going to be along for the ride. And I love how he takes these things hard. I don't just like it. I mean, I love it because that's an investment. And if you're driven like that, because sometimes I wonder, you know, these guys, they make such enormous amount, life-changing money to play a friggin' game of basketball. And how hard can it be? And maybe if it stings for a day or two, fine. But I want it to sting longer than that, man. I want because I think the great ones, and we can go to Kobe as a as a recent example of man, that this isn't going to happen again, <laughs> and, and so that's what you need. It's got to burn because what else is burned? Are you going to burn for financial freedom? Well, you already no. got that. Nope, nope. It's just got to be about the sheer joy of uh, competing, winning, lifting the trophy, and feeling the confetti rain down, and knowing that that guy across from me is awesome. And I got him. That's really what it comes down to. By the time, the way the West is stacked, and some teams could say it in the first round, mm, the Jazz really can't. Memphis wasn't awesome. You know, they, they were young and the roster wasn't complete. And, you know, they are, they're going to have to make good decisions, but the arrow ought to be up for them. But there yeah. were plenty of good, you know, that, that Dallas Clipper series, 
man, if you knock the Mavericks out, you can look over at Luka Doncic and say, he's awesome. Man, we got him. We got him. Then they're probably saying the same thing about you know, the Jazz, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, and we got him. So when did the Jazz get to say that about other people? But listening to Donovan and watching Donovan play and not be 100%, he was really good. And there's one thing he does really well that was taken away from him by injury, and that should make him a lot easier to defend. And then you look at his final stats, and there was nothing about defending him that was easy. But the explosiveness was gone. His ability to get to the hoop and jump over people, gone. And you ought to be able to, you think, crowd him and take away some of those jumpers. He ended up with 39 points. It really underlines the fact that he's got it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Got I agree on it. And you may have thought that coming out of the bubble, right? And you've been saying it before this playoff series. But if you had any doubt, watching him on one leg do that, mm-hmm. yeah. he's got it. Right. And so to say that that 50 in the bubble was a fluke, and I think we're going to be seeing more 50-point playoff games out of him, especially because he's going to be pissed off because he's not going to want to go through next year what he went through this year and last year. And it doesn't mean he'll win it all, but you know he'll get 50 trying. Yeah, I think it has to burn... Yeah. All right, DJ and PK. We got more with the Jazz coming up with Steve Cleveland. Uh, Next, Bob Casper putting a wrap on the U.S. Open, looking ahead to the British Open, and the best the world of golf has to offer. That's next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280, The Zone. Bob Casper, join us late in the show Monday to put a wrap on the U.S. Open and look ahead to the British Open. Here's Bob. Bob, good morning. Good morning. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. John Rahm, you had the first pick. You took John Rahm. He won the tournament. Although I have to say, coming down the stretch with a bunch of uh, golfers still in the hunt there on uh, on Sunday, I did the math, and it looked like you had us even if John Rahm didn't win. <laughs> well, you know, I had uh, what I had, Rahm and Shoffley and DJ. Yeah, so, they yeah. were all in the top yeah. top fifteen or so. Yeah, I was uh, I was sunk by Patrick Reed. I was four shots behind you and not going to catch you. And PK yeah. was sunk when Victor Hovland pulled out of the tournament and withdrew. That yes, he was hit him with a stand big in the eye. Yeah, stand in the eye. Gary Woodland didn't help yeah. him. Brooks Kepka almost bailed you out though. PK, he stayed yeah. in the hunt there for a while. But why did Colin Morikawa and Brooks Kepka fade, along with uh, a few other guys? And why did John Rahm accelerate through the finish line with the putts at 17 and 18? You know, John Rahm was interesting because um, out of the last, what, uh, I think they said six groups, so the last 12 players, um, John Rahm was the only guy that didn't shoot over par in the final nine holes. And uh, he ended up shooting two under par. Um, you know, it, it comes down to it comes down to who is able to play well enough and make some putts in some key situations. And you know, he just kept uh, he he just kept playing playing well, hitting the fairway, hitting the green, 
And um, and if he didn't hit the fairway, you know, he was able to extract it and get it on the green. And then and then it just came down to those final two putts, a 24-footer and an 18-footer uh, on the 17th and 18th holes that, that allowed him to pass up and pass by Louis Oosthuizen. So, um, you know, a U.S. Open is interesting because it stresses you out to the max as far as a player is concerned. Um, it, it requires you to hit fairways. It requires you to hit greens. Um, it requires you to navigate um, putting on on the on the on, you know on the greens. And um, John Rahm was the guy who was able to do it the best. And that's what they're trying to do at the USGA with the U.S. Open. Is they're trying to identify the best um, player of the week, and he becomes the champion. And that's what's John Rahm. So as far as his place in the game, where does Rom go from here? Well, you know, that's, that's up to him. Uh, he just won his first major. He's won, uh, he won a, um, uh, a playoff event last fall against Dustin Johnson. Um, and he's, you know, he's won almost, what, about 10 times now. And his first win was in 2017. So we're looking in, in, uh, you know, in just a, a short period of time, he's uh, he's really kind of pushed the envelope and getting getting up to about ten wins, and now he has a major. And you know, I think he's a guy that can probably get to twenty wins, which is kind of the benchmark now. That's when beca- you when you become a um, a lifetime member of the tour, and you don't have to qualify any longer. You can play every event, any event that you want to play. And um, and here he is. You know, he's number three in the world starting the week. Um, I, I haven't looked to see if he got to number one, but, you know, he's right up there as one of the elite top echelon players in the game. You surprised he finally got it together or this was the time? You you picked him, so you kind of felt it was coming, I guess. Yeah, I, I think it was the time, DJ, and I, and the reason I think that is because, you know, that, that event uh, memorial was ripped away from him um, with the COVID debacle with the PGA Tour. Um, and I think he had something to prove. Um, he loves the San Diego area. It reminds him of the coast of where he lives in Spain. Um, he, he won his first PGA Tour event there at uh, Torrey Pine South. He, he um, you know, he proposed to his wife uh, on the same golf course, um, and I just, I just think um, in, in his conversation yesterday after his round was over he said when he gets to san diego he gets off the plane he breathes the air he says yep this is my spot and when you when you've got that in your mind going into the week and um and you come back to a course that you love i i just felt that he was the guy that you had to go after did anybody do anything in this tournament that surprised you um you know uh i Bryson DeChambeau shooting 44 on the back nine. That surprised me. Um, he was right there in the mix of it, had a chance to win, um, was uh, tied for the lead or maybe one shot back. And what he what he did on the back nine was crazy. Um, two bogeys, a double bogey, and a quadruple bogey on the 17th hole with, uh, with a pitch shot that uh, basically hit a hosel rocket. He shanked it and uh, made an eight on the 17th hole. So that was very surprising to me. The other surprising thing was Brooks Kepka coming down the stretch, making two bogeys on the 16th and the 18th hole, and um, and not 
I, I mean, he was four under at the time. The 18th hole was a perfect hole for him to to have an opportunity to make a birdie, get in the clubhouse at four or five under par, and not being able to get it done. So that was also surprising to me. So they've gone to Torrey Pines twice now and ended up with two really good tournaments. Does this become, oh, yeah. I mean, they don't have a true rotation, but they kind of semi have a rotation. Is this, is this in it now? You know, I think it is. Um, it's uh, the, the tournaments that they've had there with Tiger and Rock Immediate and, and now with John Rahm, I think, like you said, have been fantastic. Um, it's all come down to the final hole and a birdie putt on the final hole to one tie for the win, one end up winning the golf tournament. And that's what you want. You want that excitement. You want, um, you want that uh, intenseness um, in, in crowning the champion in a USGA event. We talked with John Bodenhammer, who is the, dir- the director of championships with the USGA this last week on the show. And uh, there's kind of been rumor going around that they're going to get away from public courses and go to the, you know, the elite um, country clubs um, and places that that are known um, for uh, great championships in the game. And he said that's absolutely false. They'll always have a public courses as parts of the game. Um, and I think this one will be one that you're going to see uh, probably in another 10 years or so um, as as an open championship venue again. Is that more to try to make a connection with the average fan? I think it, you're exactly right, PK. Um, you know, they've done it quite a few times. They did it at Aaron Hills. They did it at Chambers Bay. They did, they've done it now at, at Torrey Pines. And I think, you know, uh, public golf courses, for people to be able to play public, you know, um, Pebble Beach is another one. For people to play public golf courses and say, hey, I played on the course where they played the U.S. Open, I, it's, it's a huge connection. And the USGA is all about promoting the game and growing the game, uh, along with other um, bodies in in the game of golf. You know, um, we want to grow this game and make it more popular. And I think by playing it on public courses, that's exactly what it's doing. So as we look ahead to the uh, British Open, is there anybody who played well in this who kind of sets the table or the course is so different, the conditions are so different, uh, just throw everything out? Yeah, it's, you know, the British Open is a different, is a different animal, um, especially where they're playing this year. They're playing at Royal St. George's. And, um, and if the golf course is like, um, it's been in the past. This is a golf tournament and a course that requires a lot of kind of luck as far as bounces are concerned. Um, and that's kind of the way you play over there in, in Britain is um, you require, you, you bounce the ball in. Um, and, and this one's a, this one, you'll, I don't know that you'll see a top player. Those guys will contend. But you'll see a lot of um, interesting players that win this championship, and uh, especially at this golf course. So it's not my favorite golf course on the road that they have there. Um, you know, I like to, you know the St Andrews and the Carnoustie's, and and those require a certain type of champion. This one is kind of an open free for all. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. What do you think the skill is, the most necessary ingredient of the skill that, rec- that allows you 
or requires you to make those putts, say like 17 and 18, to walk off as a winner? You know, um, it all comes down to uh, allowing yourself to do it. it it's, golf is such a mental game that, um, that, you know, a lot of times, you know, when you get in the hunt, uh, you have an opportunity to win. Um, you put a little bit more pressure on yourself to make putts because, face it, putting is where you score, and, um, and, and putting is what allows you to win a golf tournament. If you're a great ball striker, you got to be a great putter to win um, a U.S. Open championship. Um, and the other thing is being familiar or being very comfortable on the green surfaces that you're putting on. Um, that's what, that surface is what John Rahm has grown up on. Anybody that, that has lived in California, you, we've grown up on playing on Poana greens and that's what those greens are. Um, you understand the bumps and, and how, how they roll, um, and all that kind of thing. Those, those putts that he made were not easy putts. Um, you know, the one from 24 feet probably broke about three or four feet left to right, and he buried it right in the center. And then the one in, on, on 18 probably broke about two or three feet left to right, um, and he made it right in the center. Uh, after having made the one on 17, it was very natural um, it, for him to make the one on, on 18 because he had just come off, come off seeing – how that ball broke and how it went in the hole. So a lot of it's visualization, but a lot of it's 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 mental capacity, and uh, kept his head still on both of those putts. Um, stayed in his posture after he stroked the putts. Didn't stand up or anything. He just moved his head and watched the ball roll down the line, and it went right. Both of them went right in the center. So it's it's basically allowing yourself to make putts in that situation and not pushing yourself to make putts. So was he the best player not to win a major? And if so, who does that uh, crown pass to? Um, you know, uh, he was. I, I think he was. Um, I'll tell you who's who's pretty close at the top of that list is probably Tony right now, Tony Finau. Best, he's, a, he's the best player not to win multiple events and not to win a major. He's finished um, – uh, he's finished top ten, you know, eight or nine times now in major championships. Um, and, a, and a few of them in the top five. But um, the other one is Xander Shoffley. Xander Shoffley now has played in, um, what, five uh, U.S. Open championships. And I think he, up until last, up until just this last week, his best finish or his, wor- his worst finish in, in four going into this last week was a tie for sixth. And, and he was right there again, had an opportunity again. And uh, um, so... He's a guy that I, he's a guy that you'll see win a U.S. Open. He's that good of a player, um, and he might be the guy just you know coming off a second at uh, the Masters. Um, he's he's the guy I think that's carrying the torch for that as far as the best player not to win a major. How do you think Tony's game shapes up at the British? Tony likes the British. You know, the first time he played in the British, he had a top ten. Um, this will be a this will be a good one for him, and I I think um, he, he, you know, he struggled with his game this week. Um, I I watched him from the get go, and he was missing fairways both sides. Um, he was not hitting any greens, um, and uh, and he was and he pushed himself. It was pushing himself with the putter to keep up, 
And when you're not hitting fairways or greens, you have a difficult time. So uh, I think Tony will probably work extremely hard over the next month, and he will be ready to play at the British Open, and I think it will be a good one for him. Bob, as always, we appreciate it. Good call on John Rahm out of the gate, but you had yourself covered with three solid players, so you're going to win either way. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks, Bob. Take care. There's Bob Casper, Real Golf Radio. Hear him Saturday mornings from 6 to 9 with Brian Taylor on Real Golf Radio here on the Zone Sports Network. Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider, coming up next. The Jazz. What do they have to change? Where did it go wrong? What do they have to fix to go further in the playoffs next year? That's next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Time to check in with our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland. He joined us late in yesterday's show with his take on how it all went wrong and what the Jazz can change going forward. Steve, good morning. Good morning, guys. Steve, the Jazz have been beaten, and Utah, the great state of Utah, is not happy about it. People are in a bitter mood. (laughs) Do you have anything wise to say to them? Well, uh, I would say this, that uh, it, it was obvious that, like a lot of teams, uh, you know, this time of the year, guys are hurt. And despite the fact that Donovan Mitchell still put up numbers, uh, he, uh, he he wasn't himself. Obviously, Connolly's not playing. And I think that, uh, you know, when, when it's, it's a team that has such great chemistry all year long. And the, the depth, you, know, you take away that kind of depth, and you get on the road, and then you play a team who makes some adjustments, and, uh, and and it was difficult. You know, it's one thing to prepare for a team, but once the Clippers began playing differently and with a different lineup and going small and doing some of those things, there were just some adjustments they really had a hard time getting used to, and especially, as we'll probably talk about, uh, Gobert wasn't nearly as effective when they went small because he had to get away from the rim. He, were, he couldn't protect the rim. He was in a position that uh, I'm sure other teams have done. And uh, But when the heart and soul of your team is playing on one leg and, and Connolly wasn't near to be himself, uh, and, and then a very special effort by the Clippers, it all adds up to an upset. And it really wasn't. You know, if everybody's healthy, I mean, the Clippers are pretty good. They kind of underachieved a lot of the year, didn't play to their capabilities, and they lose their best player and find a gear that they never had all year long. So... Who, who knows why these things happen? But I can understand the depression and, the, and uh, the difficulty of the moment when the Jazz just had an incredible year. And it all comes to a screeching halt. And, I mean, in my wildest thoughts and dreams, I would have never thought that the Jazz could ever lose four games in a row. And when two of them being at home. I mean, you just don't expect that to happen. And that, therein lies... Uh, the uh, emotional wreck that the fans of Utah are in right now. I mean, it's just nothing they ever saw the entire year. Did never anyone ever thought that could possibly happen, and what it did. So I think once you go into athletics as a player, and then like you did, get into coaching, it's just set up 
the way it is, your heart is going to be broken. You're also oh. going to experience all sorts of highs. So you've been there. Uh, as a coach, how long does this stick with you? A while. A while. And I think, I think the best thing early on is just going to, as a coach, just connect to the guy some way. Maybe it's an email or a text or whatever, and uh, give everybody some time to breathe and, and get, get get through this kind of remorse that they're going through. But ultimately, uh, in a few weeks, I am sure this group will be contacted and coaching staff will get back together. They'll get through this. I mean, it, it is hard and it's tough, and it'll it'll go away. But I think you know you got to be really positive, and you got to you know you got to look at the things that. Obviously, that organization is going to look at changes. Where can we make some changes? But maybe those things don't happen, or do we have the group we want? I know Conley is on a different contract, so he, he may not be there. Uh, who knows those circumstances? But sometimes it's good to let people just kind of get through it themselves and then come back, get the guys together. And I'm not saying that they're going to get together and practice or anything because that's not what's happening because there's so much to do. But just making sure that, that as a coach, you want to make sure the guys are all right. And let's let's just remember what an amazing year we had. It didn't finish like they wanted, and they'll have a lot of time to assess uh, as a coaching staff what went wrong and what can we do, what could we have done better. I mean, you do all of those things, and but it is going to be painful because they had such a really really good year and uh, had just had all the pieces. But you know, injuries can make a coward of us all. You know, in the sense that you you just can't control them. It's not just you know, the Jazz and the Clippers losing guys. I mean, everybody in the league is down a man, and you got to step up. And to be honest with you, the bench, you know, for the Jazz is not real strong. They they, they certainly didn't play their game. I mean, Clarkson, uh, even Clarkson, though, he had one, you know, he really got hot. I mean, he was, he had a great year. Uh, it, it, it wasn't enough just with those six guys. And so that's the bench is something that I think they're going to need to take a really strong look at and get – not that they, you know, they're just going to have to reconfigure things, but the bench hurt them. I mean, they, they just weren't able to, and, you know, Ingles didn't shoot it real well in that last game. Um, they're just so used to watching them play where it's a well-oiled machine and they're sharing the ball and knocking threes down. Uh, credit has to be given to the Lakers. You know, uh, Ty Lue comes under a lot of criticism at times, and you know, they won that championship with, with LeBron, but uh, man, I'll tell you what, he made all the right moves. And, and, and going small and, you know, getting guys in a position where they could – they made the Jazz play differently. And now the idea that they just went off and man goes for 39 and then against Phoenix, I think he had six. <laughs> that stuff happens. And uh, you get momentum, especially when teams are playing at home. And Paul probably played the best four games he's played as an NBA player in a, in a moment that really mattered. So all of those things led to a good upset and a, you know, losing a 25 point lead. That those are things hard to digest. So there's a couple things that are hard for jazz fans to digest. Giving up 81 points and a half can never, ever, ever be a good thing. Uh, no. But it was a trend that was kind of they were building that moment. The Clippers averaged 125 points a game in their four wins, games three through six. So for people who say, well, the Jazz need to be healthier, well, okay, obviously. 
the guard line needs to be a little bigger. Can they add an extra guy there? Can they add one more forward who is a really good defender? Not these guys play all the time because there aren't enough minutes for everyone, but the Clippers seem to be ham and egg in it with different guys. Zubak's role gets bigger or smaller. Um, Cousins' role seems to completely disappear at times. They've got three guards for two spots, so one of those guys often sits. Man, Batum is third in minutes played, and he's on a one-year minimum deal because his contract got bought out in Charlotte. And Reggie Jackson got bought out midseason in Detroit. And those two acquisitions made them a lot deeper. So is that something the Jazz have to look at? Roll guys who have the right mindset and sit at times or don't play as many minutes but can come up big when they have to. Yeah, I, I think you're right on there. And, and, and Batum and Jackson did, and, and they just played so well. Batum, you know, putting him, putting, started, going small and starting him uh, caused problems for the Jazz. You know, I mean, all of a sudden you're taking Rudy away from the rim. And, and and Jackson just played like, you know, he had been an all-star the, the whole time. I mean, he just, he, no fear, made big baskets. And uh, so, you know, just, and the thing about it, it's just so much easier for, for the Lakers, I'm shooting for the Clippers to to defend. You know, I mean, you're all 6'7", six, 6'8", six, you, you can switch everything, you can do a lot of things that you can't do uh, that if, if you're not playing that way. And, and Zubar, you know, he got minutes, but his minutes really went down when Batum ended up making shots. I mean, he he was the difference, honestly. He could stretch. He's four for six for three in that last game uh, and just spread, made him spread the floor and open lanes up that weren't there before when they played the Jazz. So I think the Jazz do need to look at their bench. I, I, and there's no question about it. I don't know. I don't know a lot about their contracts. You, you guys know a lot more about that than I do. But I think the things you just shared are, are spot on, and uh, and you know, and, and I think that Conley will be uh, a situation that only he and his family are going to know. I'm sure the Jazz would like to have him come back, but they do need a couple of pieces. They, they need some athleticism, and, you know. And it's not like I mean, you take McDonough and Engel, and then you got injured guys, and, and Clarkson doesn't have great size. He's not a great defender. They're going to need to shore up a little bit. I mean, this has always been a team that shares the ball, moves the ball, can really knock it down. But when it came down to getting stops, they couldn't do that. And, and mind you, you got injuries, which is a part of it. But it is, it's also a toughness there that uh, needs to be improved. And you only can do that probably by bringing a couple of six, seven, six, eight guys that can defend and, you know, three and D guys that can guard and, 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 and spread the floor like they like to do anyway. So I, I would think that we're going to see a couple of those changes for sure. So it's easy to sit here and second guess, uh, but they were just doing the same thing over and again, over and over again, and Terrence Mann and these guys hitting shot after shot. Is there any adjustments that they could have made in the moment? You know, I mean, you you could have, you know, you can go small. I mean, it was, you know, you take when you go small, you know, you take away a rim protector, but the system that the Clippers were running was already taking him away from the rim. So maybe maybe you know you might have experimented with going small and and playing them the same way. Um, I think that I think to be honest with you, just watching Donovan Mitchell play, you could all see that he was his effort was amazing, and but he just he didn't he just slow a step. I mean it just was very difficult. Conley the same thing, and uh, and so you know you've got. Mitchell, who's probably your most athletic guy on that team, but defensively they 
they couldn't get stops. And uh, and once the Lakers started making perimeter shots and took Gobert away from the basket, there wasn't a lot they could do but try to go small maybe. And uh, but I, and again, the bench, the bench just wasn't real productive the last three or four games. So I, you know, there, there wasn't personnel there. I don't know. I'm not sure there was personnel there that was ready and active to play that could have made a difference. But I would say, you know, the adjustment of maybe going small, taking Gobert out for a bit, he, he wasn't real effective anyway with the way they were playing them. And, uh, you know, it may, maybe they could have stopped that run. I mean, the fact that they're up 25 early in the third quarter, uh, it just wasn't the character of, of the Jazz to give that up. But once it got going, and when you're on the road, anything can happen. But that was the last thing I thought could ever happen. And uh, But it did. It did because a guy like Terrence Mann, who nobody's ever heard of, goes for 39. I mean, he doesn't go off, you know, the Clippers lose by 15, and, and they're going back to Utah, and Utah's playing the Suns instead of the Clippers. Right? I mean, you can't downplay the fact that the Clippers played with great energy, great enthusiasm. I mean, they there was toughness there, and once they got it going and got back into that game, you, you could see that they weren't going to be stopped. Steve Cleveland, basketball insider, joining us. So now it's the Hawks and the Bucks, and it's the Clippers and the Suns, and nobody's got any championship uh, pedigree here with Kawhi Leonard hurt and out. He's the guy you'd think, okay, well, that's kind of an X factor, but it doesn't look like he's playing. So who you got? I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, if hopefully Chris Paul has a chance to come back, but I, I personally think the Suns are the best team out of four. They got too many, they've got so many shooters. They've got enough rim protection. They play hard. They've got a lot of confidence. And it's not to say the Clippers couldn't beat them. They, they could, but they're going to have to play really well. But, I, I mean, the Bucks, they it's hard for me to watch them and see what's going on and, and at times. And they, they certainly have size and girth and those kinds of things. But, uh, and I guess probably you think, but the matchup wise, I, I would think that the Bucks would beat the Hawks. But then again, the Hawks are a lot like the Suns. I mean, would that be crazy? Hawks and Suns in the NBA Finals. But they are the two teams that really have their, their well-oiled offensive machines. I mean, they can shoot it. They, they've got a lot of guys that can do a lot of different things. They've got, you know, they, they've got enough size to protect the rim. They're young. Uh, and I think that's a big thing too. They're, they're, you know, other than Chris Paul having to deal with COVID right now, I don't see a lot of injuries. Uh, I, I would love to see that final, Atlanta and the Suns. I mean, that that would be kind of cool to watch. You know, that's something no one ever expected. Uh, I think the Clippers are going to have a say in this thing, though. I don't know that Kawhi's coming back, but the Clippers can beat the Suns. But the the Suns just have. I mean, they're like. Obviously, the Suns and, and uh, the Jazz were, you know, two of the best offensive teams in the NBA. But uh, you, you've got, you, you've just got a group of young guys there with the Suns that, uh, and, and, and a young superstar coming that, I, and I didn't realize how well he would play at the point. And so I, 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 I like the Suns. I mean, everything I've seen about them, they, they have a lot of swagger, they got a lot of confidence. Um, I don't, I don't know that they're a team like the Jazz who are going to lose four in a row. I mean, they're going to they're going to be tough to beat at home. They didn't play great against the Lakers on the road uh, one night. You know, we'll see how they are with the Clippers. But uh, it, that team seems to have the most swag, the most confidence. 
And so Atlanta, a lot of Atlanta's success was due to, you know, guys can't make, you know, you've got, you've got guys that are missing free throws and making mistakes. I mean, the 76ers helped Atlanta a great deal. I mean, they just made mistakes. They turned it over. They missed layups, couldn't make free throws. And that's a bad recipe to try to win a, uh, you know, a conference final so, or a semifinal. So I, I like the Suns. I, 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 if, if I was going to bet a dollar, I'd, I'd say that they have the greatest upside. But that being said, if they don't, if the Clippers, if the Clippers end up beating the Suns in this thing and going to the finals, I think they win the whole thing. So as a jazz, as a jazz go forward, you know the goal obviously is to get better, as it is for every team and really college, high school, you name it, and. So they're going to have to find ways to basically, at a pro level, like you did often at the college level, is recruit guys to Utah. And Utah has certain perceptions. We know what they are. But I'm wondering, you know, you had to overcome it. You not only had to recruit guys to Utah, you had to recruit them to BYU. So that's like a double whammy, in a sense, in terms of non-church members uh, to get them to commit. And as the Jazz go forward in a new ownership, how much success do you think they can have developing the relationships and how important are relationships in terms of getting guys to make that commitment to come here? Well, you're right about relationships. And if any, any organization seems to check all the boxes in terms of you know, a coaching staff that works with the guys. And I, I watch, when I do watch the NBA, I watch coaches. I watch how they interact. And, uh, and, and, and the college game and the NBA are two different uh, beasts. I mean, it, it, it's you, the relationships are a huge part in any organization. But I think in the NBA where you've got guys making millions of dollars, there's so many people in their camp, you know, you, you've got to know how to make them click and make them work. I, I like the new ownership. I think that Dwayne Wade is, uh, is a great ambassador. He, he has come in and just seamlessly stepped in. I don't know what his role is going to be, but here's a guy that's done it at every level, and uh, he'll be able to speak to uh, a young man, whether he be African-American, white, or from Europe, or wherever it might be. Uh, he's going to be able to speak, and he, he, the people are going to listen. It's not that we wouldn't listen to the, you know, to the coaching staff and the coaches, but having Dwayne Wade there and, and, and Ryan Smith, a young man that has thought outside the box and just has done amazing things with his life and building his, his companies, uh, I, I think that young energy will be a real benefit between uh, to, to helping get de- different players answering questions about what it is. I mean, obviously, they have loyal fan base. Uh, and you're right, Salt Lake City's not going to be for everyone. But at the end of the day, uh, I, I think the Dwayne Wade uh, being there, I, I think, answers a lot of those questions. He, he's respected throughout the world. And, uh, and, and I think Ryan Smith is a guy that his whole life is a really, really smart guy that has thought outside of the box. And, and he, too, himself is passionate about this game. And I think people like to be around people who are passionate about the game. So I, I think there's some people in place there that are going to, be, that are going to help. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There are going to be some guys that just don't want to live there, that don't want to be there, for whatever the reasons are. And so but I do believe that Dwayne Wade and Ryan Smith are two big pieces that, besides the fact that you've got a, one of the greatest coaches uh, in the league today and, and a staff that is, is 
outstanding. So, I mean, they've got the pieces there. I don't know a lot about their organization inside, so it's not, it doesn't do me any good to make a comment about it because I don't know. But when I look at that coaching staff and then I look at new ownership and I look at Dwayne Wade, uh, I think there are some really, really strong personalities and, and energetic people who are, are going to be able to sell the fact that, hey, you want to be a part of this jazz program. where We're so close, and uh, we want to get over the hump. We need you. I can tell you Dwayne Wade is intended to be in the celebrity owner uh, at 35,000 feet. He's, uh, he's digging way, in, way more into the uh, business side of the uh, basketball operation. He, he wants to know. Um, yep. And so I think he's surprised people inside the organization. Maybe not Ryan, because Ryan, you know, golfed with him and knew him. But I mean, the people who work in the organization are like, "Wow, this guy's in here asking good questions and wants to know what's going on." Um, so yeah. I think that bodes well. It, it shows buy-in on his part. I'm curious how much you think Donovan Mitchell can recruit. I, I mean, we're sitting here, and so maybe we're overselling it because he's the local hero and all that. But watching the post-game stuff, and, and PK's right, it is old guys talking to young guys, so that's part of it. But it seems like there's a charisma, and people are going to want to play with him. Not everybody. Jazz fans will probably want some guys and get the door slammed in their face, and it'll hurt because some people just aren't coming here. But it does seem like he's got the charisma, and some people will want to come here and play with him. No, I, I completely agree. I completely agree with that. Uh, and I, I, you know, you watch as they play and the respect that people have for him and, uh, you know, in wins and losses over the course of the year. There's so much respect for Donovan, and he is the face of the Jazz, and he is the guy. And uh, I, I believe that he... He'll he'll be out recruiting. I mean, and I don't know who's going to all be out there, but he's a guy that is the face of that organization, and uh, he's got such great energy. He's got so much charisma. He's passionate. He speaks his mind when he maybe shouldn't, but that's what people love about him. He's not going to hide behind anything. He'll be. He's very accountable to himself and to the player, hard on himself. Those are the kinds of things you like, and uh, so. Yeah, I think I think Donovan, Dwayne, Ryan, you, you, you know, the coaching staff, uh, you, you, they're going to have to recruit. I know, you know. I remember being at BYU, and obviously uh, BYU had always been a really, really good program. And I had a little hiccup when things went down, and Utah was so good, and it all came down to trust. It came down to relationships, and I remember going into homes. And people and knowing that Utah was recruiting them and, and, and just getting them to believe that, listen, we can turn this thing. And, and so relationships and for us as a staff, when we went into homes, um, I always loved it when we went into homes and, and, and people there are wearing Utah hats or they're, they're, they're wearing another university hats. We go, we got no respect here. But at the end of the day, the reason we got it turned was because we developed relationships we may let them know that we were going to put them in positions to be better. We we're committed to that. And that was, that was our consistent message. And, and over time, it turned. And so the Jazz are way farther ahead than the BYU was in 1997. But I, I think the trust issue and the relationships issues are huge for people coming in, especially younger players. Maybe it's their second contract. Now they're looking at a place where they can fit in. And, and listen, the, the Jazz have really good players, but they, they need to continue to get better. 
And and you, because you know you you take a look at Bogdanovich and Ingles who had great you know they had great years, but defensively, the, you're, you're always I mean and Bogdanovich is a tough dude, but you you need quickness and athleticism defensively, and and I'm not sure that they have that in the in the system right now. So I'm not saying we're going to get rid of Bogdanovich or Ingles, but we need to add too. We need more athleticism. We need more people that can certainly continue to shoot the three like they do, but that they can guard. And uh, that's what I would be looking for. And, uh, you know, Gobert's not going anywhere. He had a great year. They're going to have to – They mean, you know, maybe they need another – maybe they need a more athletic 6'8", 6'9", forward who can score around the basket but can get out and guard outside so that they can go small but not lose athleticism, not lose that girth that they need. So that may be something that they're looking for as well because that, that, is, that doesn't exist right now in, in, their, in their program. They need a – Six eight, six nine, athletic guy that can go inside out, but can guard. Doesn't have to be a great three point shooter, but at least you got to keep guys honest. And uh, and you can switch everything with that kind of group. So that that's probably the the, the one thing that I see from the outside looking in. And, and and again, I don't know the young guys they have in their program or they're developing, but if they don't have that, that's what I'd be looking for. Steve, as always, we appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you again in a week. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. There's Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines next. Stay with us.